Public schools are some of the last outposts of real democracy because no matter your race, age, as long as you're a minor and a child, gender identity, immigration status, sexual orientation, you are entitled to receive a free public education. I've been teaching at a, a pretty high need school in Bushwick, a community school for eight years. It's the eight year that I've been at the same school. It's the only school that I've taught at. So I teach at a small renewal and priority school. It's an independent school. So there's a tuition that families pay and it's a pretty high tuition. Um, and so we have a lot of scholarship uh, money also for families that can't afford. Because I work in a, in a private school, um, we do not need to worry, thankfully, about sort of public policy with education um, because we're, we're independent. I'm a teacher at a public school system in Metro Atlanta. I teach high school social studies. They come into the classroom like, you don't make any money, so you must be here because you can't do anything else. Like, once... Like, when students found out where I went to college, the ones who, like, understood the concept of Ivy League or whatever, they're like, well, why are you here with us? Like, why are you here? And, you know, and I'm like, well, because I actually really want to be. Uh, I mean, I think it's because it's a largely, like, feminized profession that has a big role to play in why compensation is so low. I'm in a position where I see the whole, basically all the kids in the school because of running the computer lab as I do, which is a special like gym or art or something. These are just a few of the stories of first through twelfth grade teachers from both public and private schools reflecting on the education system in early May of 2017. Between the push for privatization and deregulation of the public school system, the hasty implementation of strict immigration standards, and the push for school choice, the new Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, and members of the current administration are causing a huge impact on the majority of young minds and those who cultivate them. My name is Ashley Lake, and this is the story of teaching in 2017. My name is Maura Furphy, and I am a Spanish teacher at a private school in the Bronx. I've been teaching high school Spanish for the last around 20 years, 16 of which have been at this school and middle school as well. It's been a long time now. <laughs> My name is James. I teach at a school that's just outside of Detroit. I do middle school, English, and history. I started out in Bushwick at a public school, high school and then I did a charter school for five years, and now I'm in an exam school, which just means that students have to test in, but it's also a public school, and that's in Manhattan. I mainly work as a special education teacher there, uh, but I'm also certified as an English teacher, so I kind of swap teaching roles during the day. Either I teach English or I co-teach a different subject. So this year, for instance, I'm co-teaching earth science, and uh, you know my role in the classroom is to make the information manageable for kids with learning disabilities. And then I'm a peer collaborative teacher, so I kind of work on like adult education within the school, doing, uh, serving as a support for teachers in instruction design or kind of developing our school community. I will tell you that when Trump was elected, it was like a day of mourning. It was just really insane to walk around school and to see, 
faculty and students, you know, weeping and crying. In fact, we wound up canceling regular classes for that day as well as the next to have workshops and roundtables and, and fishbowls and discussions about what this means for us and trying to grapple with it and trying to organize um, around it. And so, I mean, again, it's, it's another privilege of working at a school like mine that we could do something like that. A lot of my students aren't necessarily very politically plugged in and were just kind of confused about what had happened and didn't understand how someone who had been on, who was a TV personality had become the president, you know, and they, they were asking me, well, did he go to college? Like, do you have to go to college? Like, how did he get to do this? I had multiple ones ask me, little kids, these are grade schoolers, like, how, how would anybody like him? He's horrible. Some students are kind of scared. I know that the day he was brought into office, a lot of students had a lot of questions. The district I work in, I have a lot of with it kids who are kind of on top of stuff and know what's going on. And they had some really good insightful questions. Some students were a little nervous, but nothing too, too drastic. I have kids, have had students ask me directly about, do I think that they or their parents or their siblings could be deported? Um, a lot of them say fuck Donald Trump. A lot of them say he should be assassinated. They hope he'll be assassinated. They believe he will be assassinated. Or the children of immigrants talk about going back to like their country of origin. Students are genuinely asking me if Donald Trump can reinstate slavery. So, like that's a real question that that multiple students have asked me. I'm really interested in education policy and education discussion that's really about like how trauma and poverty affects kids because it's it's massive it controls everything everything is a factor of that and that that's trauma to be wondering every single day if you're safe if your family is safe if your well-being can be assumed to be stable almost every single kid that i asked and i didn't ask all of them but almost every single kid that i asked had some family member or family members that were now feeling in danger or were affected. A family member that was away that now they were worried wasn't going to be able to come home. Uh, a family member that was planning to go away and is afraid to go away because they think they're not going to go home. Um, cousins, you know, uh, their own traveling. You know, in the summer they go down and spend the summer there and, and see extended family. You know, now my parents are saying, you know, we might not be able to go this summer and I'm going to miss my grandmother. And I noticed that a student, little Muslim girl, that wasn't there and her classmates said, oh, she's not back yet. Um, she went to a wedding in her country this weekend and I knew her country was Yemen. And, okay, she must have gone over there for this wedding. Then this band went through and now she's stuck over there. It caught my attention and made me, made me worried for her. I talked to an older sister of hers and she said, you know, my sister went over there with my mother, my father, and my brother, and they went over for her sister's wedding and they were stuck over there and couldn't come back. They didn't know when they were coming back. And so I casually said to her, so who's at home with you? And she said her two sisters' names. So it was a first grader a fifth grader, eighth grader, and a tenth grader were at their home by themselves that entire week. And I guess there was a family friend that had been keeping an eye on them the weekend before, which was supposed to be the plan, and then when they weren't able to return, 
this family friend couldn't just stay there indefinitely. So she was kind of coming and going. This is what the girl told me. And I just had this clear vision at that point where I'm like, okay, okay, okay. there's these four girls under the age of 16 that are now fending for themselves in in apartment in in uh, still a, a rough area of Brooklyn. Um, how are they getting food? How are they afraid to leave their house? Are they, um, you know, what if something happened? What if a fire started? What if somebody buzzes the door and realizes? Um, if they were in danger, who are they going to tell? The cops? And then, like, if somebody, if the police got involved or the authorities were involved, then how would they handle this situation? And, you know, would the family be torn apart? And it was just... It was just really intense. There'll they'll be jokes, um, and that's very problematic to me about like, oh, you're going to get deported, you know, in like a taunting, I'm just kidding kind of way. And, and that's really scary to me that that's become kind of like a normalized way of like ribbing each other. In seeing that, it's, it's really important that they see those role models that look like them and that they have teachers that understand where they're coming from and can speak fluent Spanish and know the foods that they eat and know their country because they have gone there too or they have family there. I also wish there were like more black male teachers um, because, well, just because like for balance sake, but also just in terms of like modeling respectful behavior as a man. The population of the school is probably about 85% black and within that, it's really diverse. There's students that are African-American. There's students from all different types of countries in Africa and from the Caribbean as well. The other 15% is Latino, which is also a diverse group. Um, probably about half of them are of Mexican descent, and the other half are from anywhere else. That district I work in is all across the board from a social economic stance as well as ethnicity. We have students who are from like middle class and from lower middle class and working class. We have African Americans, a few Hispanic, white Americans, a few Middle Eastern Americans. First couple hours I have between 18 and uh, 24 kids. And then my afternoon classes are um, 30 to uh, 33 kids. The cap is 33. We have up to 23 students in a classroom, but really we try to make it so that there's less than that. So I would say maybe the average for a foreign language classroom, depending on the age and level, would be maybe 18, which is, you know, which is great. And you need that size in order to be able to actually practice the language you're learning. In terms of the population, I would say that the majority are white Jewish affluent, but that's not everyone. Um, there is um, kids from, you know, all over the city and all um, from all walks of life. But in terms of the majority, um, given the tuition, um, it is, you know, we have a lot of wealthy families that attend the school. Like our maximum class size is 35 students which I think is completely ridiculous. And it's like, that's the maximum. And like, I, I most of my classes have 35 students in them. The school that I teach at is roughly 70% Latino, 30% African-American, or a Title I school, basically meaning it, it's a 
severely poor school. A lot of my students themselves are immigrants or are from immigrant families, mostly from Mexico, Central America, Ecuador, and Honduras, and the Caribbean. It's a, a, a large immigrant population in the community uh, where my school is, and the students are, many of them are first generation Americans and have parents who immigrated here, whether it's from uh, Middle Eastern countries like Yemen or South American, uh, Ecuador and Colombia, um, or Central America, we have Costa Rican kids, we have a, a large Mexican population. My strategy, I guess, if you can call it that, is like actually like being a real human being with my students like for example i have over 200 students but like i make sure within like the first week of school that i know everybody's name i think building like a relationship of mutual respect is really important and that helps because like they're used to like authoritarian figures that don't care about them or don't have to and so going that route like really isn't successful i just feel like the school system now is really Authoritarian, they don't treat the students like people. I've taught in multiple schools, and in one of the schools I taught, the students were not allowed to go to the restroom, like, period. And if there was some type of emergency, you had to call the office so they could have a police escort to the restroom. And this was done because um, in the prior school year, some students had, like, set a fire in the bathroom or something, which... Of course it's dangerous, but I feel like that's not unheard of for something like that to happen at a high school. And I don't I don't think the adequate response to that is to treat the students like they're in prison. <laughs> um, this year, one thing that's unique is like I have a lot of students who really want to learn. More than, especially at the high school level, like more than I'm used to, I have students who actually want to learn for learning's sake. And that's something that I've missed in previous years. And then also I feel like a lot of these students are extremely respectful and like nice and kind, like more so than I'm used to. And I don't mean that in like a negative stereotype, but I just mean like they're extremely nice, like they're extremely thoughtful. And so that makes it even weirder for me that they're like pathologized as like these dangerous kids who like can't go to the bathroom. You know, education today, there's always these new initiatives that somebody writes a book about something and then the superintendent finds out about it and then they make all the principals do it. Um, so like when I first started teaching, there was no such thing as the Common Core or it wasn't really prevalent yet. Um, and like within like four years we had somebody come in and talk about the Common Core standards which were just kind of overwhelming and I think annoying for most teachers. But then actually when I, uh, which is interesting, after this election I come to think that the Common Core standards are really important because most of it is about reading and writing and uh, backing up backing up what you say with evidence from actual primary sources and text, which I think a lot of publications kind of did not do in this election, and it was more gossip and rumors and a bunch of made-up stuff with no evidence. So I think now I'm like, Common Core, Common Core, it's amazing. You have to, you have to be able to, like, you have to be able to explain yourself, and you need to make sure you're backing up your statement with evidence and... It's about, you know, having a clear, concise argument that 
is also valid. My thoughts on the core curriculum is that, like, it just doesn't treat them as individuals. Like, I do agree that as a society, we should have a baseline of education. Like, if everybody's going to be forced to pay into society through taxes and being policed and other means, then, yes, you should get a benefit that you have a certain level of education or a certain skill set. But um, it's really, it's extremely ethnocentric. Like, I teach world history, and you should really call it European history. Um, and so that's really a struggle. I definitely think that should have, like, Somewhere for college, I think they should have they should have the abilities for the, the required classes to match the population of the students. Um, I mean, all these studies show that, like, especially students of color are more engaged when they're learning about culturally relevant information. But even more so than just like speaking about race. It's just the information itself just isn't relevant to our current reality. Like, I try really hard to make things relevant, but a lot of times I feel like, you know, why am I talking about, you know, this ancient Chinese emperor when I have students who, like, don't understand how the electoral college works or are literally asking me, like, literally, can Donald Trump make us all slaves again? Especially with things like social studies. I just feel like the core curriculum is just a setup for failure, like, and just privileges people who buy into the status quo as far as, like, what is knowledge, what knowledge is valuable, what is language, what's the correct way to speak, et cetera. Like, it just perpetuates inequality at the end of the day. If you have a student that is in fifth grade and has an IEP that they have a learning disability, when they take the state exam, whatever grade they get on that exam, it just goes down as a fifth grader's grade score. So if a student who has a legal state document said, if that student's state document says that they read on a first grade level and have a severe learning disability or they have severe autism or whatever the case may be, they their grade is then used against whoever their teacher is. So let's just talk about who their teacher is gonna be. Well, the kids that are in special ed are going to have a special ed teacher. That special ed teacher is going to be faced with challenges that regular education teachers don't face. You have the kids that have been put in there for behavior problems that have attention deficit. That teacher at the end of the year, all her students get ones. Uh, that teacher could have a portfolio tell you, look, look at how much they've gained, look how much they've learned, or they're really good at this and they've shown an ability in this. It means nothing. If that teacher continues to hand in ones on those tests, that teacher is in a high likelihood of having to lose her job. The thing that is so criminal is that when our military has a problem, they fall short on a mission, or they get bogged down in a war we shouldn't have gone to, or they go into a, a mission that was poorly planned or poorly equipped, nobody in this country would then turn their backs 
on the soldiers because they blame the failure on the soldiers. Just ask yourself, what sort of person, if you talked about a war that we had a problem or a mission that went awry, what sort of human being, what sort of American citizen would then say it was those soldiers' faults, it was those stupid, greedy soldiers who wanted their college paid for? If someone said that, okay, think of how you would feel about them and recognize that the teachers that teachers in the United States of America are some of our best citizens with some of the purest hearts who have given their lives to help and to nurture the most vulnerable amongst us. And they are following the orders. They are, they are following what they are told to do. So when they come up short, stop putting the buck on them. Equate it with the soldiers and you'll see what I'm talking about. heard from the boss advocating for less regulation on charter schools, sort of playing by a different set of rules. I've definitely seen charter schools care more about the bottom line with dollars as opposed to student achievement. So I feel that, you know, they're taking students away from public school, just taking funding away from the schools, which is forcing schools to close down. And I think that a lot of parents are thinking students are getting higher grades in the school, that they're achieving better when it's really just the school isn't having as strict of discipline and strict curriculum as public schools may have. I was working for an alternative ed school and at a meeting, the, the owner of the school said word for word, I want to be consider the McDonald's of education. They don't make the best hamburgers, but they do it fast and they do it the same every time. I just can't believe that someone with no education experience assumes this role. Like, first of all, that's just wrong. <laughs> I'm really worried about the agenda that she's pushing and the voucher system and school choice really being marketed as like great idea, free market capitalism, just pick what you want and, and go to it. I just feel like we're defunding and devaluing public schools. Even within like the small school movement in New York City, you see this struggle of like actually attracting kids and getting them to your school. I just see the value in building something that kids will come back to and can trust in. It's an institution that's faithful and, and charters and the concept of a voucher system just will implode that. I've talked with kids about some real fears because that's been a challenge and awakening for me in teaching period in the eight years that I've worked with this population is just hearing the real hardships of the lives that so many of my kids have had and it just kind of knocks me over because you know I'm looking I'm speaking with people who are 14 15 16 and they have cross borders and lost family and been bankrupt and been threatened. And I think now there's just a real fear. I've always felt like, well, you're here now, you're safe now. Like there's systems to protect you and you're always gonna be safe in this school and you're always gonna be safe in my classroom. And that is a feeling that's been really challenged. I think people should stop being afraid of black children. Like I see that a lot. And I mean, even with like black teachers, like I feel like there's this view that they're like so dangerous and violent. And like, you know, like I have students that are in gangs and they're just kids. Like luckily it's not like the Chicago or LA where, you know, they really have to be engaged in violent activities. But 
Yeah, I just wish people would stop fearing and pathologizing black children. Our principal said it really well. It's not so much that we are speaking against the president, but we are definitely going to take a stand against the hate rhetoric that he um, conveys. And so, you know, when he says terrible things about immigrants or about women or about a whole or Muslims or <laughs> and pick, uh, take your pick, unfortunately, we are going to stand up against that, against rhetoric of hate and rhetoric and policy that will disenfranchise minority groups, for example, or individuals at our school, whether they be faculty, staff or students. We will protect them and we will stand up for them. The world becomes what you teach. And I might be an educator um, in my profession, but we all have the capacity to be educators, and we should be educators. We should be teaching our youth and our young people. As long as we live in a democracy, their voice counts just as much as anybody else's. And so it's important to uh, enable them to feel empowered um, to use that voice and to be active. And I actually have a lot of hope for, for them and for the future. And hoping that we can all do our part in, in empowering them to, to use their voices and to make, to affect change going forward. That's all for today. I'd like to thank you, our listeners, for your generous support in our efforts to start conversations so that you can keep them rolling. If you like what you've been hearing, please head on over to our Patreon page and make your donation. Head on over to patreon.com slash story of. This is the story of.